0: Now, you may have noticed that in the last several months we've changed the logo that we've used in between the songs for the church uh, from what we had done in years and years and years gone by. We've even got a new sign coming that will be here soon uh, to take the place of the one that was broke down outside. Now, the new logo, it represents the, the new vision for our church. Now, throughout the time that I've been here, our church has always been the church with the school, but all of that changed. Last August, and that left us with a bit of an identity crisis, because for over 20 years, we were the church with the school. I mean, our identity was rooted in the school. We had our family meeting after we had made the decision to close the school. I said there was one truth about our identity that we had to understand, and that was that we could not be the church that used to have the school. A church that is known for what it used to be is a church that will not live long to move into the future. We have to know not who we were, but who we are and who we're going to be. During that meeting, I talked about that we need a new vision of what we're going to do. Now, a vision is simply a picture of the future that produces passion. It is um, an idea of what could be with a conviction that it should be. Right. And so what could be what could Jesus do in and through and for our church? And we want to think beyond the the normal things of nickels and noses. You know, having $500,000 in the bank and 300 people in attendance isn't necessarily a God-sized or a God-given vision. Instead, we do want to think along the lines... Of what could Jesus do in us and through us and for us to advance his kingdom and our community? And and what does Jesus want to do in us and through us and for us to advance his kingdom and our community? And praying about this continually brought back the idea of being a a beacon of hope in a sea of despair. Right? And the imagery of a beacon of hope in a sea of despair is somewhat taken from my time in the Berlin Brigade. Now, the Berlin Brigade uh, existed from just after World War II to the end... Or to the mid-1990s. And its goal was to ensure that Berlin remained an island of freedom in a sea of communism. They, they knew that they were surrounded by the enemy, but they didn't care. When the enemy cut off supply lines, keeping food from American soldiers and West Berliners alike, the Berlin Brigade flew in food for soldiers and citizens alike. When the enemies drove their tanks up to the Checkpoint Charlie and threatened to invade the Berlin Brigade, Drove theirs up to the checkpoint as well. Now they knew that where they were, they were so far from from friendly forces that reinforcements could not arrive in time to save them if the enemy decided to invade. And yet they stood their ground and they said, you will not take my city. No matter how bad things got or how hard the enemy tried to scare them, the people of West Berlin always knew there was hope because the Berlin Brigade was on guard. To me, that's sort of how I see being a beacon of hope in a sea of despair. We know that we're surrounded by spiritual darkness. We know that there is a very real spiritual enemy who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. We know that one of the ways the enemy steals, kills, and destroys in people's lives is by filling them and even entire cities with hopelessness. We know that sometimes hope is dangerous because... To truly hope in Jesus means that we take everything out of our hands and we place it in His. We're completely trusting Him to come through on our behalf. We're, we're putting ourselves in a place where if Jesus doesn't come through, everything is going to fail. We know that having hope in Jesus can seem foolish. To a world that does not believe in Jesus. We know all of this. But we dare hope anyway. We stand our ground against the enemy. And we say. You'll not take my marriage. You'll not take my children. You'll not take my grandchildren. You'll not take my church. You'll not take my city. You'll not take my hope. Now if we do these things. Then no matter how bad things get in our world, no matter how much the enemy tries to bring fear, the community will know that there is hope because they see a beacon of hope shining from our church. That is what we want to be. Hope is attractive. Our hope in Jesus will draw others to Jesus. That discouragement, despair, and hopelessness does not attract people. But hope is attractive. Hope is unique. How many people do you know that are truly hopeful about what's going on in the world, their life, and our community? Hope in us as individuals will lead people to ask us about the hope that we have within us. Every one of us know people who are miserable. We know that they are hopeless in their lives. They feel that their lives can never change. They are enslaved to sin and addictions, negative emotions, and many other things. They have no idea that Jesus can set them free and they might be free indeed. People all around us need hope. And we serve a God of hope who will fill us with all joy and peace and believing so that we can abound in hope through the Holy Spirit. God intends for us to be a people of hope. God intends for His church to be a place of hope. God intends for us to be a beacon of hope in a sea of despair. Now, being a beacon of hope in a sea of despair, it will require something from us. It requires us to believe in the power of Jesus to do things in and through and for our church to make a difference in this community. It requires us to know and embrace the mission that Jesus has given his church. It requires us as individuals to seek and find the spiritual gifts that Jesus has given to us as members of his church. It requires us to believe in the power of prayer so much that we make it a priority individually and collectively so that our church becomes a house of prayer. It requires us to gather together and worship Jesus and be strengthened so that when we go out into the world, the hope within us can shine out. It requires us to commit ourselves to one another as a church family and not merely as individuals who sit by one another one, maybe two times a week. Now, the series of messages we're starting today are meant to lay a foundation of all we'll build on to become a beacon of hope. The passage we're going to look at today is probably one of my favorite passages in the book of Acts. It is one I've wanted to preach for years. It's a story that shows what Jesus can do in, through, and for a church to bring change and community. And as we look at this, and I'll talk about it again in a minute, but as we look at this, what we want to keep in mind is that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's what the Bible says. That's not my opinion. And if Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, then what Jesus did then, he can do now. Then what Jesus did in Acts, Jesus can do in God. Right, we're going to keep that in our mind as we look at this. We're going to start reading in Acts 19 and verse 1. Um, when you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. We're going to kind of go through the whole chapter, most of the chapter this morning. We're only going to read the first ten verses. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men, who, now the men were about twelve in all. And he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months. Reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. And when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord, heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. And the title of the message is The Power of the Church. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome and worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. Father, we thank you. That, Lord, you are a God of hope who fills us with all joy and peace and believing so that we can abound with hope to the power of your Holy Spirit. And Lord, we all know the need for hope in our world. We know God people that are hopeless. We know the the pull to discouragement. We know, God, how easy it is to give up and settle for the status quo. But God, that's not what you've called us to be. And that's not what you've called us to do. So, Lord, today, as we begin to look at this, begin to burn in our hearts the desire and the idea that our church is meant to be a beacon of hope, that we as individuals are meant to be beacons of hope as we go out into the world, God. That, Lord, as we go out into a dark and a dying world, that what people would see in us is the light and the life of Jesus Christ. And they would be attracted to that. They would desire that. They would ask us about the hope that we have within us. They would come to know the hope that is found only in Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, today I know that there is an enemy that would love to steal the good seed out of people's hearts so that it would not bear fruit. And I ask you right now, God, to block him and to cast him out and to keep him away. Let all of our hearts be good ground so that the seed could sink deep into our hearts and bring forth fruit into our lives. Let your Holy Spirit come. And let Him plow up the fallow ground of our hearts where it's needed. Let Him convict us where there's need of convicting. Let Him encourage us where there's need of encouragement. Let Him strengthen us where there's need of strengthening. Let Him restore us if we've slidden back in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, today let Your Holy Spirit come and make Your Word living and active so that when we leave here we would know, not that we had heard from a preacher, but that we had heard from the Most High God Himself. Oh Father, today fill me with your Spirit and give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech that I would not be a hindrance in any way to what you want said or what you want done. Have your way in all of our hearts. We ask this in the mighty and victorious name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. Now, Ephesus was a place that was filled with immorality, idolatry, and witchcraft. The Apostle Paul went there and he preached to them the gospel of Jesus Christ. In this passage, it demonstrates to us some of the amazing results of Jesus empowering his church to make a difference in their community. But right. I just want to point out some of the results before we get into the main part of the message. Right. Notice in verse 17 that the name of Jesus was magnified. Right, that this became known to both Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, the fear of the Lord fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. What Paul and the church did at Ephesus made Jesus famous, but not in the way that televangelists today often make Jesus famous. Their life and their ministry demonstrated to a lost and a dying world that the Jesus Paul preached was real and he was awesome. Right, look at verse 19. Many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them and they totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. Right. These people were demonically influenced and they were using sorcery and witchcraft. Jesus Changed them. He delivered them from that to such an extent that they got rid of the books and the stuff they had, and it totaled up 50,000 pieces of silver. Now, my studying this week, I found out that a piece of silver was basically the equivalent to one day's wage. Right? So, they gave up 50,000 days' wages. Right? They didn't keep them for the value, they didn't resell them. They were such a, Jesus made such a change in their lives that they made a complete break from it and threw it away. Right, look at verse 20. So the, the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Right, that's a summary of all that I've already mentioned. Right, the word of the Lord grew in people's hearts and it prevailed over the immorality and the idolatry and the sorcery of the day. So what that means is, as as the church began to, to do what they were doing and Jesus began to work through them, rather than turning to the world for the answers to the issues of life, the people of Ephesus began to turn to the word of the Lord, saying this is where the real answers are found. But my favorite result is actually found in verse 24 through 27. There was a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Diana and brought no small profit to the craftsmen. In other words, he made a lot of money making silver, because remember, a silver is a day's wage. So he makes all of this out of silver. Then he calls all of the silversmiths together and people of similar occupations. And he says, men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying they are not gods which are made with hands. So not only is this trade of ours falling into disrepute, but the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. So many people had been saved. And they had been so radically saved that it was beginning to affect the bottom line of the idol-makers. It was beginning to affect the bottom line of the pagan temples. Idol-making was big business. These men were wealthy and influential people in the community. But that was before Paul and Jesus came to town. Jesus worked so powerfully through the church. That idol makers were afraid they were going to go out of business. They were afraid that pagan temples, the idea of being despised, isn't that they were just going to spit on it or graffiti it, but it would just fall into disuse. That nobody would go there. That so many people would turn to Jesus and they would be so completely transformed that they would give up their old way of life. That they would never darken the door. Of a temple of Diana. They would never buy an idol. They would never do anything. These people were being so radically saved. That they made a clean break from their old idolatrous ways. Jesus worked through the church so powerfully. That those who profited from human slavery to sin. Were nervous. About the change that was taking place. In their community. And The main idea I mentioned earlier, what Jesus did then, he does now. What Jesus did in Ephesus, he can do in Gimon. If he is the same yesterday, today and forever, then we can see these same sort of things happen in our day, in our community. I mean, do you believe that? Wouldn't it be great... Wouldn't it be great to see Jesus's name made famous not because of a scandal but just because he was being lifted so high that people from all over were being drawn to him. Do you now you may not know somebody that's enslaved like to to practice magic but do you know people that are enslaved to sin to something they can't seem to get out of wouldn't it be great to see them set free from that? Wouldn't it be amazing to see those in our community who profit from human slavery to sin go out of business? They just not have anybody to come buy their stuff anymore. What Jesus did then, he can do now. What Jesus did in Ephesus, he can do in Gaiman. Now, I don't believe that this passage gives us a 10 step method to seeing these results. But I do believe it gives us principles that if we apply them and if we live them out faithfully, it will enable our church to be a beacon of hope. So we'll quickly go through the principles. Number one, preach the gospel. Paul's focus was on preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. We see this all throughout in verse 8. He went into the synagogue and he spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. So for three months, he preaches the gospel. But there were some that were hardened and they didn't believe. So they caused trouble and Paul withdrew there. He went to the the school of Tyrannus and then he began to do it all over again for two years. Right, so for three months he preached the gospel, and then he lost his meeting place and he went to found another meeting place. And for the next two years, he just went again preaching the gospel. This reminds me of what Paul said to the Corinthians about his time there. He said that when he was among them, he determined to know nothing except Christ and him crucified. Paul knew that the only message that mattered, the only message that would save souls and change lives and make an eternal difference was the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And So he focused on what mattered. He focused on the gospel. The gospel centers on the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. Right? And this is important. The gospel isn't about a guy named Jesus who lived and hacked off the wrong people and was tragically murdered. By a repressive religious establishment. No, the gospel is about Jesus, the Son of God. Who came to earth and lived a sinless life. Who taught amazing things, did incredible miracles. And yet was betrayed, was beaten, and was crucified and died. And yet that wasn't a surprise. That was the point. That was the reason that he came. But he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. And by doing this, he demonstrated his power over death itself, his ability to forgive sins. and Really, that all that he had said was true. So if we don't explain the life, the death and the resurrection of Jesus, we haven't preached the gospel. The gospel isn't you can do better. The gospel is Jesus has done better. Also, a part of the gospel, it is to explain the the sin nature of man. If I'm going to explain that Jesus died and rose again, I have to explain why that happened. Why did Jesus have to die? Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. But people have to understand that they have sinned against a holy God. And really, they are justly condemned for that sin. If they don't understand that, they will never understand the significance of Jesus' death and resurrection. Jesus died to pay the penalty for their sins. Right? It's only when we understand our guilt that we see our need for salvation. If people do not understand that they have sinned, and that Jesus died for their sins, they do not understand the gospel. If people do not believe that Jesus died for their sin, then they do not believe the gospel. Both sides have to be clearly articulated before it is the gospel. And it has to be this because the gospel is the only message that has the power to save souls, change lives, and make an eternal difference. That's why it's good news. The gospel is not bad news. It is good news of great joy. And it is for all people. So we have to know it. We have to believe it. And we have to proclaim it. For it to be a beacon of hope. Second principle. Work hard. Studying verse 9 and 10 reveals More hard work than you'll see at a casual glance. For Paul's part, he was at this time what you might call an unsupported missionary, which means he had no financial support outside uh, from the outside coming in. As free will Baptists, when we send a missionary overseas or to a new place in, in America, we typically try to make sure they have enough funding so that all they do is focus on preaching the gospel. But Paul didn't have the support. In a later meeting with the Ephesian elders, Paul would have to write to them that while he was there, he worked hard to provide for his own needs. Now, Paul's trade was that of a tent maker. And according to historical records, the way things worked at Ephesus at this time was the work day went something like this from 7 to 11, you worked. Then from 11 to 4, there was a midday siesta. And then they went back to work from 4 to to Right, so from what we can tell, Paul's preaching at the lecture house of Tyrannus was during the siesta time. So Paul's day went like this. 7 to 11 in the morning, make tents. 11 to 4 in the afternoon, preach the gospel. 4 to 9.30 at night, make more tents. This was repeated six days a week for two years. One of my commentaries said that this was done for a total of 300. Thousand one hundred and twenty hours of preaching and teaching time. That's a lot of work. But it wasn't just Paul that worked during all of this time, right? We know this for two reasons. First, Paul only preached for five hours a day because there were people who were willing to listen for five hours a day, right? So for many in Ephesus, their day went like this. From 7 to 11, do whatever it was they did for their job. From 11 to 4 in the afternoon, go to church and listen to Paul preach about Jesus. From 4 to 9.30 at night, go back to work. Six days a week. For two years, they repeated that schedule. That's a lot of work. But we know it required more work than even that. Because in verse 10 it says, So that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Now, it would be... Difficult to believe that what this meant was everybody in Asia went to the lecture house of Tyrannus and sat in on a church service. Most likely what happened was something like this. From seven to eleven, those who were going to church with Paul worked and talked about this Jesus they were learning about to their co-workers and anyone that would listen. Then from eleven to four, they went and learned some more about Jesus. And then from four to nine thirty, they went back to work and talked about what they had just learned about Jesus to anyone who would sit and would listen to them. That's a lot of that's a lot of work by everyone involved. What happened in this chapter? It didn't happen because of one man and it didn't happen easily and it didn't happen conveniently. There was a lot of hard work by everyone involved to bring about all of this stuff in the community. But that should make sense to us that this would require hard work. I mean, we're talking about seeing souls saved, lives changed, captives set free, prodigals return home, families restored, our community changed. All of that sounds like hard work because it is. Hard work is a non-negotiable to becoming a beacon of hope. In the book of Colossians, Paul says he labored and strove. He labors and strives to accomplish these things. And the, word he, the words he used, it pictures working to exhaustion and then working some more. Becoming a beacon of hope, it won't be convenient or easy for any of us that care about seeing it happen. The things that God wants to do in this church and for this church and through this church, they're big things, I, I believe. But when God does big things, he expects big things. From whom much is given, much is what? Required. If we want to be a beacon of hope, we have to be prepared to work hard. Principle three, be empowered by the Holy Spirit. That there was preaching and there was power. Look at verse 11. Now, God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out of them. That is amazing. The power of the Holy Spirit was present to ensure that everyone knew Paul was legit. That the people at Ephesus were no strangers to signs and wonders. The demonically empowered sorcerers and pagan priests of of the city, they could do magic tricks. The works of the Holy Spirit did through Paul testified to those who saw that Paul's message was real because Paul's Jesus was real. The signs and wonders that the Holy Spirit did through Paul confirmed the message of the gospel as true. And it's a part of what caused people to turn to Jesus. We, too, need to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. So much so that there is a part of every sermon in the next three weeks where we will talk a little bit about being empowered by the Holy Spirit. Now, since that's the case, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here today other than to say we we need this. If we are going to be a beacon of hope, we must be spirit filled and spirit led disciples of Jesus Christ. Now, there is one hope-inspiring truth I want to point out. And that is, in the same verse where Paul said he labored and strived, he went on to say that he did that through the, through, uh, through the power that worked in him mightily. right? And, and the great truth, the hopeful truth there, is that God never tells us to do anything without giving us the ability to do it. right? So everything we've talked about so far, preach the gospel, work hard, be empowered by the Holy Spirit, we are able to do that because the Holy Spirit will ensure we can. The rest of what we're going to talk about, we can do because the Holy Spirit will ensure that we can. What we're going to talk about next week, we can do because the Holy Spirit will ensure that we can. Everything we're going to talk about, while it requires hard work on our part, there will be an enabling and empowering of the Holy Spirit to ensure That we are able to do whatever it is God has called us to do. Now, as with hard work, being empowered by the Holy Spirit, it's a non-negotiable if we're going to be a beacon of hope. You and I, on our own, no way. We do not have the power or the capability of being a beacon of hope in a sea of despair. Through the empowering of the Holy Spirit, this church can be a beacon of hope in a sea of despair. Principle four. Focus on Jesus. As Paul preached Jesus, or he preached the gospel, he, he kept the centrality of what was important before the people, and that was Jesus. There was such a focus on Jesus that even those who didn't believe in Jesus sought to use the power of the name of Jesus. Look, look at verse 13 through 16. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call upon the Lord Jesus call on call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits saying we exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches and there were seven sons of Sceva a Jewish chief priest who did so and the evil spirits answered and said Jesus I know and Paul I know but who are you and the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, prevailed against them, so they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Now the story is somewhat humorous, but it demonstrates the difference between those who know Jesus and those who know about Jesus. But when those who only knew about Jesus tried to cast demons out in the name of Jesus, they failed. They left the house naked and bleeding. That's a high level of fail. I'm not sure you can recover from fleeing naked and bleeding from a place. But that's where they were. But they saw the power of the name of Jesus, so they tried to take it and use it for themselves. But the focus on Jesus was also seen in verse 17. This became known both to... All Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus and fear fell on them all in the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. Now, this is interesting. When everyone heard about what happened in verses 13 through 16, they magnified the name of the Lord Jesus. That's kind of amazing to me. These again, these are unbelievers as well as believers. Those who, who didn't believe in Jesus, they heard about the fail of the seven sons of Sceva, but they didn't go to Paul and say, gee, Paul, I guess your Jesus is kind of puny sometimes, isn't he? They didn't blame Jesus for those guys failing. They blamed those guys for failing. Paul's focus on Jesus was so intense that even those who did not believe in Jesus could tell the difference between those who knew Jesus and those who merely knew about Jesus. Now, I believe part of the reason for this goes back to their familiarity with evil spirits and signs and wonders. In sorcery, and the worship of the false gods, the power was in the words, in the incantation. Sorcery was about calling upon the right God at the right time, using the right words with the right inflection in your voice. Having a personal, intimate knowledge of the God wasn't important, wasn't required, wasn't Anything. The incident in verse 13 through 16 it demonstrated that Jesus was different to everything they had ever known before. Jesus could not be controlled. Jesus could not be manipulated. Jesus could not be used for personal profit. The power was in Jesus himself, not in the words one used about Jesus. Paul's focus on Jesus, Paul's focus on Jesus caused them to see that there was a difference. Between Jesus and the false gods that they already knew about. we too must focus on Jesus. I say this often. But it bears repeating often. People need Jesus. Not our politics. Not our morals. Not our preferences. And not our standards. They need our Jesus. Now, this isn't to say... That our politics and our morals and our preferences and standards don't flow out of our faith in Jesus. Hopefully, they all do. It's only to say that these issues are secondary. Jesus is primary. Everything else comes after that. People can get politics right, however we determine that. But if they miss Jesus, they still go to hell. People can get morality right. But if they miss Jesus, they still go to hell. People can get preferences right. But if they, get G- if they miss Jesus, they still go to hell. If they get Jesus, well, then everything else will come out in the wash eventually, given time. We cannot think that we'll become a beacon of hope through politics, morality, preferences, or standards. We only become a beacon of hope through Jesus. Jesus. Because all hope is found in, rooted in, and focused on Jesus. And in principle five, believers genuinely repent of sin. Verse 18 is the most interesting verse in the passage. And it was something I had never noticed until I began to study this out for the message. And many who had believed, came confessing and telling their deeds. Now notice the wording. Who had. Past sins. Many came who had already believed and then they confessed their sins. What an interesting turn of events. The name of Jesus being magnified caused people who were already believers to come and confess their sin. In deep repentance. But right? what happened in verse 13 through 16. It not only affected the unbelievers who saw it. But it caused the genuine believers who may have been sort of nominal in the situation. Or not all in. To reassess their lives. And they came. And they confessed. And they forsook their sin in deep, deep repentance. Now let me ask you. What kind of testimony do you think that had before unbelievers seeing believers in deep repentance before God? Well, verse 19. Also, many of those who practiced magic brought their books, burned them in the sight of all. They counted up the value of them and it was 50,000 pieces of silver. When the unbelievers saw believers confessing and forsaking their sin, they felt it was safe to confess and forsake their sin as well. It's powerful. Disciples of Jesus aren't perfect. And we know disciples of Jesus aren't perfect because we are disciples of Jesus and and we aren't perfect. Despite this, so often we pretend we're perfect. Let me tell you a secret we don't fool anyone. The unbelievers who saw we, how we acted at our kids' ball game, they know we're not perfect. The unbelievers who saw us at the restaurant when our food was slow and cold, they know we're not perfect. The unbelievers at Walmart who saw us react to the guy in the 20-item-or-less line with 55 items, they know we're not perfect. The unbeliever who cut us off in traffic yesterday, they know we're not perfect. The unbelievers we discussed politics with on social media yesterday, they know we're not perfect. Since everyone knows we're not perfect, why do we pretend to be perfect? Now, none of this means that we say, well, I shouldn't even try to be progressing in sanctification, live a holy life because, hey, I'm not perfect and everyone knows it. That's just a silly conclusion. But what this does mean is that we quit Trying to put on airs of perfection. This place will not be a beacon of hope. Because everyone who gathers here has their act together. This church will be a beacon of hope. Because it's a safe place. For us not to have our act together. This church will be a beacon of hope. Because when one of us falls. We gather around them to pick them up. Not to kick them in the gut. Sadly. The church of Jesus Christ is often known as the army that shoots its own wounded. Have you ever seen that? That is not a beacon of hope. It's the opposite. When as disciples. When we're open about our sin. Our failures. We have deep repentance. It frees up other people. Unbelievers. Come and confess their sins too. When they see someone they know is regularly following Jesus, trying their best, kneel and cry and confess their sin to the Lord. They see this is a safe place. But when they see us all stand there like, not me, I got it together. Then they go, oh, well, I know. You and you and you and you and you. And, and I know they don't have it all together. We must just supposed to be pretend like we got it all together. So I'll pretend to. A beacon of hope. It is a place that when you fall. You find the loving arms of brothers and sisters who will stand you back up. Instead of the accusing fingers of judges condemning you. This gives hope to those of us who wrestle with our imperfections. And our failures. But it also gives hope to unbelievers watching from the outside. When they see that we don't judge and condemn one another. Then maybe they can be open and honest about their sins and their failures as well. Now, what Jesus did then, he can do now. What Jesus did in Ephesus, he can do in Gimond. I believe this. I believe that my Jesus can do exceedingly abundantly above all that I could ask or imagine. Because that's what the Bible says. And because I believe this about Jesus, I believe in Jesus' church. I believe still that Jesus works in, through, and for His church to save the lost, to restore the backslider, to encourage the discouraged, to strengthen the weak. To set captives free, to restore marriages, to return the prodigals back to their families and to give hope to the hopeless. But I not only believe this about the church universal, I believe this about our church. I believe that Jesus has worked in our church in the past to do good things. Eternally significant things. Life changing things. And I believe he still wants to do those sorts of things in us and through us and for us into the future. I believe what lies before us is greater than what lies behind us. I believe this church is meant to be a beacon of hope in a sea of despair. And I hope you believe it, too, because it'll take all of us to make it happen. But it can happen. Let's stand as our musicians come.